The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Great, thanks Andrew. Uh, well, good morning. My name is Jimmy. If it's your first time here, it's really great to have you here with us. Um, we are in Romans 5, 1 to 11 uh, for three weeks. We're doing a short uh, three-week series this morning. Oh, not this morning, a three-week series over three weeks, um, as that generally goes. Uh, and this morning, we're going to be focusing on just verses 3, 4, and 5 of Romans chapter 5. Um, the purpose of this series has been really just to discover afresh and remind ourselves again of the wonderful assurance that we have in Jesus Christ and to know that there are very real present and future blessings and benefits for those who have been justified by their faith in Jesus Christ. If your faith is in Jesus, if you are a Christian, then it means that Jesus' perfect obedience has been imprinted onto your life, which means that it's his obedience and not yours and my disobedience that counts towards us on the day of judgment. Last week we looked at the first two verses, namely that we uh, have peace with God, we have, received, we, we have access to the grace in which we stand, and we now boast in the hope of, of the glory of God. And then this week, beginning in verse 3, Paul is basically going to extend that last exhortation of hope and really just see how far he can stretch it. When it comes to boasting, when it comes to rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, uh, really one of the questions we should ask is, but what do we do when the situation seems hopeless? What do we do when the situation that we're in, or at least the trajectory of the situation that we're in, seems to be barreling towards something that seems to be hopeless, that it feels like it's, it's not going anywhere, that God can't redeem this? So this morning, that's going to be our focus. How, how do we maintain hope? How do we, what is the hope that we have in hopeless situations? And there are four main points or stages to this text. Uh, I'll read them out now. Firstly, there is joy in the midst of affliction. That's, that's the first part of this. Secondly, we see an explosive chain reaction. Thirdly, heavy hope. And fourth, full-on love. Joy in the midst of affliction, 
an explosive chain reaction, heavy hope, and full-on love. So let's pray, and then we're going to get into our passage. Father, we thank you that we have your word in front of us this morning. Lord, we thank you that uh, when so many of our brothers and sisters struggle to get your word, Lord, and brothers and sisters all over the world, Lord, struggle to get your word, the words where they are persecuted, Father. And we think of them this morning as we open your word without any fear right now, Lord, of, of any kind of persecution because we're simply doing this. So, Father, may we, as we spend this time in your word, uh, be grateful for it. May we receive it as your word, Father that you have spoken to us, that you have provided for us in our hands. Holy Spirit, as we've been reading in this passage, Lord, pour out the love of God into our hearts this morning. May we truly know the reality of your deep and massive love for us, God. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Have you ever had the experience of someone else taking credit for your work? It's a horrible, it's a horrible feeling. When I was in year 12, uh, we got together for, it was kind of like a year-level assembly. I think there was like three or four classes in our grade, and all of the year 12 classes were together. And the teacher who was running this, it was like a Christian studies one, it was a, uh, we were at a Christian school. The, the teacher who was running this particular assembly was uh, holding a bit of a quiz up front in the style of who wants to be a millionaire. So a series of questions that got harder as they went on, and you only got the prize if you made it to the very end. And I was the student who was selected to go and sit at the front and and answer these questions. And because it was uh, a Christian studies lesson, the the questions were all about the Bible, and I started answering, they they started off pretty easy, and were getting harder and harder as they went along. And then it got to maybe question eight or nine, and the question that came through was just a bit of a doozy. It was a bit tricky, and I didn't quite know what the answer was. I didn't quite know how to get my my head around it. And so I used one of my lifelines, which was Ask the Audience. And so the teacher put it to the whole, to the rest of the year 12s, and they're all screaming, like a hundred teenagers all screaming at me, all, all yelling in unison, B, the answer's B, it's B. And I thought the answer was B, but I also thought it could have been C, like it, it wasn't too sure. And I looked over at my friend, Linus Bowman, and Linus and I had been friends for many years, and he is a smart guy, uh, he knew his Bible well, and I looked over at Linus, and he looked at me dead in the eyes and said, and just mouthed the words, it's C. And I thought, well, if Linus says so, because I thought it could be C, I mean, the beat seemed too obvious, maybe it's a trick question. So I locked in my answer, C, and got it wrong. <laughs> it was absolutely wrong. Uh, and, I was, and the whole crowd was like, ah, as soon as I said C, and then he said, no, it's B, it's very obviously B, and as soon as he said it was B, I was like, of course it's B, and then I looked over at Linus, and he had this big smile on his face, and he had intentionally led me down the wrong path. Um, apparently, I'd done something to him a few weeks earlier, and this was his recompense. The next student was called upon, Phil Ahrens, another friend of mine, and Phil got to take over from me at question nine. 
And so he got up and that answer there, he all knew what the answer was. And so he took over from there. And there was only like three questions left. And the questions, just to add insult to injury, the questions became suddenly incredibly simple. Like, I'm gray and cuddly and climb trees and eat eucalyptus leaves. Who am I? And I was, I was sitting in the back going, what is this? Like, I was asking, I was answering questions about, you know, trickier stuff. Um, and so Phil Aaron, he got the rest of the questions right. He got the prize. And then the, I sat at the back stewing in a broth of anger and frustration and betrayal and embarrassment, thinking, that should have been me. Like, I just had to, it, was, if it wasn't for Linus Bowman. And that's, this is, you know, 20 years ago now. So <laughs> the reason why I say all of, all of that is because Paul begins verse 3 with the words, and not only that. And that means that what he's about to say here, we should consider as an extension of what he has previously said. He has previously said in Romans chapter 5, verses 1, we looked at this last week, since we have been justified by faith. That's what we looked at last week, which we spent most of our time looking at. Since we have been justified by faith. And I was thinking this week that another way that we could think of being declared righteous by faith, if we were using the CSB, is Jesus giving us the credit for his work. Jesus gives us the credit for his work. We're the ones who benefit from it. Justification by faith teaches us that Jesus gives the credit for his perfectly obedient life as the free gift of grace to sinners who don't deserve it when they trust in him to do so. We bring nothing to the table except for our disobedience that put Jesus on the cross. And Jesus, Jesus takes our disobedience. He bears the punishment for our disobedience while crediting us with his perfect record, his perfect obedience, which we then reap the benefits and rewards for, benefits and rewards that are present and also eternally future of us for being declared righteous. And because he has begun verse 3 with, and not only that, that means that everything he's about to say next needs to be understood and interpreted in light of that. We have been justified when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. That is a true reality for us now. What he's going to teach us here is that one of the benefits of being justified by Christ, by faith in Christ, is going to help us answer a very important and practical question. Because what he's going to talk to us today is, is really a practical, a, a practical question, really. This is the kind of question that we would probably ask on a Monday. Like we come to church on a Sunday and we're built up and we're encouraged and we hear the word of God and we encourage one another and we learn new things and we grow in our faith. And then on Monday we get to work or school or wherever it is that we head and the reality of life starts to set in. We might forget the encouragement we receive. We might, some of the things that we were encouraged in, some of the things we learned, some of the ways we grow that might leak out of our minds. It's one thing to hope in the glory of God. That's a really good thing that we should set our sights on. But then you get to the regular routine of work and study and, and a hostile world. And the reality of that starts to set in and we can lose hope. And this is what Paul wants us to think about now. He's getting very practical. He's getting very real. And these are the thoughts 
that should fill our minds on a Monday. So the first thought, the first thing he wants to teach us is about joy amidst affliction. He says, and not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. Last week, it ended with we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And he says, not only that, we also boast in our afflictions. Now, Paul called to use a number of words, different words for, for afflictions there. But the word that he chose there carries this sense, not just of trials in general, although that is certainly in view, but it seems that really Paul has in mind here the kinds of trials, the kind of, kinds of sufferings that, that really put pressure on our faith. Like there are hardships that are hard and, and that they are very difficult, and, but they don't necessarily rock our faith. <clears throat> there are other things, however, that big or small, the occurrence of them really puts pressure on our faith. It really puts pressure on our relationship with God. It really puts pressure on our trust in God. That's what this word really refers to. It's pressure, it's weight, it's something that can crush us down. And there are lots of things that we could lump into this category. I was talking to a guy uh, a few years ago, and he was reflecting on his failed marriage. And he was, it was really causing him, it really rocked his faith, he was really causing him to question whether or not God was good. Another friend of mine I was speaking to recently, a bit of a failed business venture, and he was, we sat down together and he was grieving that, saying, <clears throat> where is God in this? Like, I thought God was meant to come through on this for me. It really rocked his faith. It could be that we see some kind of injustice taking place and we think to ourselves, how can God let this happen? This is the kind of affliction that Paul is beginning to to talk about. But it goes beyond that. Right now, here in the West, there is a growing hostility towards Christians and Christianity in our culture. And more and more, we're being told that anybody who promotes or just simply has a faith should be held in, in a level of, dis- of, of, um, of suspicion and even hostility. In, in a world, our world promotes looking inwards to find, uh, find happiness, looking inwards to find our true selves. And to that, Christianity says, actually, no, <clears throat> don't look inwards, look upwards. Look upwards for our sense of hope. Uh, upwards, look up to God for our sense of who we are. And that message, as wonderful as we believe it is, is being treated with hostility. Is being even regarded as being dangerous. And our society is increasingly becoming hostile towards people of faith. It's going to keep happening that way, and it can cause us to start to really wonder: Is following God worth it? <clears throat> so, how does Paul advocate that we approach these things? He says, we boast in them. That is, we boast in the midst of them. Not boasting about them specifically, but in the midst of them. The idea of boasting, the word that is used here, <clears throat> and we, <clears throat> excuse me, it can be rejoicing as well. Uh, same way that we looked at last week. It's this idea of excessive confidence. And it's quite an ironic picture that Paul is painting here. It's a picture of someone who was, in, who was going through trials, going through suffering, going through affliction, and instead of being downcast, instead of being depressed, instead of being crushed down, they are instead boasting. It's an ironic picture. Imagine a footy player on a field. It's halftime, and the score is 48-0 against his team. And he's, you, you would expect that person to be down. You expect him to be downcast. You'd expect him to be in grief, to be, to be at a loss. 
But instead, you look at him and he seems to be boasting. Now, it's not arrogance, and it's not that he doesn't care, and he's not blind to the situation, it's that he knows something. It's almost as if he's come back from the future and he knows what the score is going to be at full time. That's what's causing his boasting there at half time. That's the idea that we get in here for this. It's of someone who knows something that others don't. This person knows how things are going to end up. And that dramatically impacts the way that they interpret their present afflictions and persecutions. This is why Paul says straight away, because we know. That is critical to understanding how to survive under persecution, under, under discouragement, and the trials that rock our faith. It's knowing something that the persecutors of our faith don't. And the way that Paul writes this indicates this as not just something that it was once upon a time or that we learned it and we, we had this knowledge at one stage and that's what carries us through. It's an ongoing knowing. It's something that we meditate on, think about, recall often. We should carry it with us all the time because by this knowledge, by this knowledge that we have, we'll be able to see through the persecutions, through the afflictions to their appointed end. So what should Christians know? We should know that the trials that we experience have a God-given, God-directed, and God-ordained purpose. And that's something worth considering. The things that challenge and contest our faith have a distinct purpose for us from God. Paul's going to say this quite famously a few chapters later in Romans 8.28. He says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Paul is saying the same thing here, except that in our passage for today, he's pulling back the curtain to see what actually that looks like behind the curtains, behind the scenes, to see how this happens. Our trials and persecutions are not aimless chaos, but rather they set off a chain reaction, an explosive chain reaction of events and dispositions that result in explosive hope in God. Hope in the glory of God. That is the God-ordained end for our, of our afflictions. He says in verse 2 that we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And here in verse 3, he carries on, we carry on boasting amidst afflictions because they also will lead us to hope. When the trajectory of life seems to lead away from hope and the situation seems hopeless, the Christian knows that all roads lead to hope. So let's look at this explosive chain reaction. There's this chain reaction that Paul starts to play out for us, starts to outline for us. The first link is that affliction produces endurance. Now, before we look at what he means there by endurance, we've got to look at this word produce. We should think of it not like a, like a switch being flicked on and off, but something that has been cultivated, something that has been uh, created over time, kind of like, like we're working the soil, turning it over and over to eventually achieve a result. We can't expect that in the midst of afflictions that we'll all, we'll all of a sudden flick, flick a switch and be happy and cheery all the time, but we should be able to expect that we can look back at difficult times and see how God has sustained us and see that God has actually grown us in that time and caused us to have hope, caused us to boast in that and rejoice in that. 
Well, I remember a time, this is going back a few years now, where Kirsty and I, we went through a really difficult time for about two to three years, and I could, just, I could sum, sum it up by simply saying, it just felt like we were stuck in between two seasons of our lives. There was one season that we, we knew we were right where God wanted us to be, and, and then there was this new season that we, we hadn't embarked on yet, but we kind of felt stuck where we were, and it was two or three years. That's a long time of feeling like there's, there's not a lot of purpose, there's not a lot of reason for, for what we're doing. We just kind of felt like we were, the wheels were spinning a bit. Now, at the time, that was awful. But we can look back at that and say, oh, wow, God was growing. I would not change that. God was growing that. We, God, was called, God was producing something in us in that time. So what is produced by affliction? Paul says it's endurance. Affliction produces endurance. Now the word here for endurance, the Greek word has two parts to it. The first is hupo, which means below or under something. And the second part is mone, which means a dwelling place or a habitation, somewhere an abode. And so the sense of this word endurance has this idea of dwelling below something. And so we couple that with the word affliction, which is a heavy, pressing, crushing weight. And what we get the picture of it is somebody who's actually sitting under affliction, someone who's sitting under persecutions and not looking for an easy way out. They are instead enduring it. One of the challenges of persecution is that we'll be tempted to look for an easy way out. We'll be tempted to, to compromise. We'll be tempted to, to go along with the flow of whatever's causing us that, uh, that affliction. It might be the temptation to concede a moral or theological stance, but the enduring person does not take the easy way out. They are steadfast, and this affliction makes them tougher as a result. This is the first thing that Christians should know in the midst of affliction. The pressure is not there as an end in and of itself. The pressure is there to cause us to endure, to create endurance for us. It's a grace of God for us. The next explosive link in the chain reaction is character. Endurance produces proven character. And I really like that the CSB chose to include that word proven in its translation because that's really the sense of it. The person with proven character is not flaky in their commitments they are not slippery in their dealings with people. They are entirely dependable. They are the kind of person you can trust. But it hasn't come about because they are naturally a good and trustworthy person. It hasn't come about because they've had some kind of advantage in their upbringing. This person, their character has been proven. It's been formed in the crucible of difficulty and pain and opposition. The message translation by Eugene Peterson uh, translates this brilliantly. He says, Patience in turn forges the tempered steel of virtue. This person's character has been forged not in the comforts of an easy life, but in the crucible of difficulty and pain. In this world that has become an increasingly hostile towards people of faith, Imagine if Christians were known as being those with proven character. Like imagine if the, the general feeling or the general testimony of people, of unbelievers, the, for the average unbeliever, 
though they were encouraged by the media and the world around them to treat people of faith with, with hostility and with suspicion, imagine if, uh, just additionally to that, the Christians that they knew were the best people that they knew. They were a people of proven character. Like imagine if the average testimony for the unbeliever was, you know, I know that I'm meant to hate Christians, but man, they are, I know a few of them and they are the best people that I know. I can fully trust in them. They have proven character. It's God's plan for us that we would grow in maturity as believers. We'd be mature men and women. He writes this in Ephesians 4, 14, hoping that we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every, bit, every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. That we will be able to stand firm, not be knocked around or sunk by the world. He wants us to be brave and endure the world that we live in, not only for our sake, but for the sake of the unbelieving world around us. Imagine if the heading over your life was persecuted, yet proven. What a testimony that would be to the persecuted, yet proven Christ that we love and adore. So affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And then that in turn produces hope. Now, like we said last week, this word, our English word for hope is just, it's a little bit weak. Because when we think of hope, we think of you know, a hopeful wish, something we hope for a desired outcome, but it's uncertain. But the Greek makes it very, very certain. It is a hope-filled certainty of the things to come. And because this is the, the last link in the chain of, 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 of this chain reaction, this is a heavy hope that we experience. The reason why affliction will eventually lead to hope is because suffering and affliction, the, the really deep suffering, like the stuff that really stings, usually involves the removal of something that we once trusted in, the ones that we, something that we once hoped in. This is why something can be a real threat to one person, and yet that same thing poses no threat to another. To someone who their hope is in financial gain, then financial loss is the end of life. If your hope is not on financial gain, then that will be difficult, but it'll be manageable. But if you set your hope on that, then the loss of that thing will, will be devastating. Or to somebody who set their hope on the opinions of others, they're a people pleaser, all they want is to just, just to have the approval of the people around them. Disapproval is like a death sentence. It's very different for somebody else who doesn't really care what other people think of them. But for the people pleaser, for the person who struggles with that, that's a difficult thing. That's more than difficulty. That is, that is deep suffering. The furnace of suffering refines us and burns away the things that could not sustain the weight of our hope. And it does that so that we end up hoping in something far more trustworthy and true. Affliction leads us to putting our hope in the glory of God because that is the greatest thing that we could ever put our hope in. And simply nothing else can bear the weight of our hope. 
Paul says something very similar in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. He says, For our momentary light affliction, that's the exact same word that we have in Romans 5, is producing, again, the exact same word as Romans 5, for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Again, the same word as Romans 5. The only thing that can bear the weight of our eternal hopes is the incomparable and eternal weight of the glory of God. The only thing that we should be putting our hope in is the glory of God. If your hope is in something other than God, your hopes will crush that thing, and that thing will eventually crush you. You will at, the same, you will at some stage become utterly and bitterly disappointed by that thing. If your hope is in the perfect career or the perfect spouse or the perfect children or the perfect job or the perfect experiences or the perfect friends or the perfect financial position, you will find yourself becoming perfectly discontent, disappointed and discombobulated by the inability of that thing to sustain your heavy hope. And this is why Paul goes on in verse 5 to say, this hope, the hope of the glory of God, will not disappoint us. It will not disappoint us. When we put our hope in the glory of God, we will not be disappointed. Last year, uh, actually it was a year ago this week, um, for our wedding anniversary, we took the kids down to SeaWorld for a few days. It's SeaWorld Nara Resort. And we got this package deal that you could stay in the resort and then go to SeaWorld and Movie World and Water, uh, Wet and Wild. And uh, we went to SeaWorld on the first day and it was great. Kids saw the penguins and the dolphins and the polar bears, and it was cool. And then the next day, we thought, we'll go for a drive, and we'll go to Movie World and Wet and Wild, which are right next to each other. And we went to Movie World first, and it was okay, like, just not our cup of tea. Like, our kids are into roller coasters and water slides, but Movie World, for people that size, is mostly just taking pictures of people dressed up as Batman, and they just weren't really into that. This is cool, whatever. We then decided, let's go to Wet n' Wild, because our family loves water slides. Like, we, we, we water slide water slides. Like we, like, we really know how to slide down water slides well. We love it. And so we got, went back to the car, put our sunscreen on. It's just 100 meters down the road. Put our sunscreen on, got the kids' togs on, drove over. And as we drove over, we are like, oh, the car park's a bit empty. Like, it is winter, but we can stop. Like, that's Okay. And then it was really empty, and then we got up to the front door and it was closed, and it turns out Wet n' Wild is closed on Wednesdays in winter. The disappointment was real. The kids were fine with it. I was devastated. I was like, are you serious? I was so, like, the, the, everybody got very quiet in the car because they could sense that I was bringing the temperature of the family down because I was like, that is not okay. We came for water slides. And the language that Paul is using here is as if to say, that's not going to happen with God. In fact, the strength of this word is that we're not going to be put to shame. If we read the ESV, it translates this line as, this hope will not put us to shame. The reason why is because we're instructed to put our hope onto something which God himself is singularly focused on doing himself. You see, God is for God's glory. He will, he does glorify himself in all things. God is singularly focused on and eternally capable of and powerful to 
glorify himself in all things. If we set our hope on the glory of God, we will not be put to shame because nothing in existence is more certain than God glorifying himself. We looked at this in quite a lot of detail last week, and so I'm not going to get into too much meaning about that. You can go and listen to that last week. It's on our website. But the reason why this is good news is because we love glory. Anybody been looking at the sunsets this past seven days? Glory, right? We went to dinner at uh, Renya and Henrita's house on Tuesday night, and they've got a westward-facing living area, and it's just the sunsets were just glorious, and you can't take your eyes off them. We love glory. Anything that is glorious, we love glorifying it. That's how we enjoy that thing. The reason why we love stuff is because we love glory. And so when you have the most powerful thing, and I'm not even going to say in the universe because he's bigger than that, when God, who is infinitely powerful, is solely determined to glorify himself, that is good news for us because we can't get enough of glory. We put our hope in the glory of God. There is nothing more glorious than God. We are never more excited and thrilled than when we are truly glorifying something that is glorious, and nothing is more glorious than God. Paul said at the end of Romans 5:2, uh, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That means there's going to come a moment, uh, going to come a time where we will have excessive confidence, we do have excessive confidence that there will come a day that we will see God in all of his glory. And we will see him with glorified eyes, glorified bodies. And that's important because if we don't have that, we can't be in the presence of God without being incinerated by his holiness. And there's going to come a day for every single Christian who will lay eye, we will lay eyes on the face of God. We will see him as he absolutely, truly is. And we will be eternally lifted up, eternally, glor- eternally glorified in him. Treasure of treasures. Chief among riches is the glory of God. If we were to ever uh, be given the option of either spending a single moment, like half a second, in the infinite glory of God, or have a lifetime of receiving every single treasure known to man. And if we were in our right minds, we would choose the single moment in the presence of God. He is far more glorious than anything else in the entire universe. He is more glorious than the accumulation of everything else in the entire universe. And the hope that we have as Christians is that one day we will be brought into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we will see his glory, not for one moment, but for all of eternity. Put your hope in something else, and you will be disappointed. The only thing that we can hope in, and that will not disappoint us, is that we are going to see God as he truly is, and we will see him with glorified eyes and glorified bodies. Eternal exponential ecstasy is what we are promised in Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know this to be true? This is our last point, full on love. We know this to be true. Because Paul says, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That there is the guarantee of our future glory. Here's what this means. 
It means that God the Holy Spirit, who was given to us as a gift from God the Father, comes along and he grabs our attention and he points us towards God the Son and his glorious death and resurrection. And he says to us convincingly, this is how much I love you. God loves us so much that he sent his son to earth and he died in our place so that we would be credited with his perfect righteousness and obedience and we could be reconciled to God and spend eternity with him in glory. He loves us so much that he wants us to spend eternity with him, glorifying him and worshiping him, being eternally fulfilled and satisfied in doing so. Paul says something very similar to this again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So this is just a little bit further on than where we were looking before. Talking about our eternal dwelling in heaven, he says in verse 5, The one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. The reason why we know God can be trusted to come through in what he's promised for us, the eternal weight of glory, the hope of the glory of God, is because he sent his spirit to us to point us towards the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. In other words, if you want to know that heaven is as good as it's going to be and that we are guaranteed that we'll get to experience it forever, all we have to do is consider the fact that God sent his son to earth as a gift to us because of his love for us. That's our guarantee. The Spirit has been sent into our... God has poured his love into our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. This is what it means that God's love was poured out into our hearts. That word there, to pour, has this sense to it that it's full experience, the fullness of God's love expressed and experienced without restraint. Paul talks about this again in Romans 8.32. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him, gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? God's made the down payment. He's, he's given us his son. He sent the Holy Spirit. If he's, if he's done that, how will he not also give us Everything. As Christians, we are walking into a time of increasing hostility towards our faith. The only way that we're going to be able to boast and rejoice in the midst of that persecutions is if we know that God held nothing back and given us everything in his son, Jesus Christ. And that means that he'll hold nothing back in bringing us to glory. Set your hope on that alone and we will be able to endure and rejoice and boast in the greatest hostility. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.